Meet Reed Lance Rosenthal, rancher, number one best-selling award-winning author, and unabashedly, unapologetically, on the right side of the outstanding issues of our generation. But don't try to fence him in. Sometimes his positions will surprise you, because Reed is definitely his own man, with his own opinions. You might love him, you might hate him, but you won't be able to stop listening. Step over to the right side with Reed. Howdy, listeners. It's Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Another big show today. You know, can you feel the quickening? Can you hear the drums beating louder and faster? Can you feel the rapidity, the increase in rapidity with which events are moving? Yes. Well, they are. And what you feel is correct. Trust your gut. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff today. I got a lot of emails in the mailbag. People wanted to know more about real estate. Where it had been and where it was going, and what my thoughts were on it. Well, I'm flattered, but I'm going to share facts with you, not just my thoughts. So we're going to do the history of real estate and real estate cycles in the United States. Wow, will that be an eye-opener for you? And then we're going to tell you the rest of the story, which is what's happening with real estate just in the last 60 days. In fact, just in the last week or two. Boy, eye-popping. And then I'm going to bring to your attention something that a lot of people are not familiar with, And a shout-out to my friends back east who uh, sent me this information. You know, DEF. Do you know what DEF is? DEF is what makes diesel engines run. And let me tell you about a squeeze that's being put on the entire trucking industry of the United States and all diesel vehicles. Because it is intentional. And it is manipulative. And it is both international. You know those foreign policy history lessons I gave you the last few weeks? And it is also internal, and it is also spurred by globalist ambitions. But you will find it shocking. And then we're going to have a big rat-a-tat-tat, because I've had stuff building up for weeks as we've been into these other subjects, and I have a pile of rat-a-tat-tat of all different ilks and colors. So let's get started, as we always do, shall we, with a quote. And this is from Thomas Paine, the mentor of the founders. A constitution defines and limits the powers of the government it creates. It therefore follows, as a natural and also a logical result, that the governmental exercise of any power not authorized by the constitution is an assumed power, and therefore illegal. All right, you can kind of keep that quote in mind as we go through our stories today, because apropos it is. And here's an apropos story from the ranch. I was thinking the other day, I was watching this tiny drop of water, and it kind of oozed its way into a ditch. And then, of course, the ditch was flowing out over the fields, and that was caught by another ditch, and it went into a pond, and then back to a creek, a small creek, kind of bubbling along through the trees, and then into the larger creek. And I know that that larger creek goes into the Platte River, and the Platte River empties into the oceans. And it reminded me how this water collected and became ever more forceful, ever larger, ever more volume of what was happening around the globe. People waking up. You know, there really are no more Republicans or Democrats or conservatives or liberals. Progressives are a whole different thing. People around the globe are waking up. They are linking arms as they should. And I'm going to talk about that in this show from time to time, and I'm going to talk about it at length over the next several weeks, because humanity has a common bond, and that bond is freedom, and it has a common enemy, 
And those enemies are the globalists and the control freaks and the progressives who want to take it all away from you. Let me give you a quick rundown of the history of real estate throughout all the years going way, way back. And then I'm going to get into a little detail on it for you. Because the history of real estate is fascinating. And it culminates in your house today or your apartment today or your land today. In 334 BC, the first great real estate grab of humankind was by Alexander the Great. He didn't buy it, he just took it. In 1066, he was emulated by William the Conqueror. He defeats the Normans and declares possession of England. In 1783, Napoleon gets on the real estate bandwagon and expands his empire. He acquires Egypt, Belgium, Holland, Italy, Austria, Germany, Poland, and Spain. Then in 1803, the United States had this on the foreign policy history things. You know, you should listen to that because it ties right into this. And that is on the rightsideradio.com, the history page. Just click on the link, listen to the story. In 1803, the U.S. acquires 828,000 square miles of new land in the Louisiana Purchase. It was like 15 million bucks. I mean, quite a deal. 1855, Baird Warner, the oldest real estate company in the United States, is formed. In 1867, brought you this on the foreign policy history lesson too. The United States acquires a frozen chunk of land from Russia. It's called Alaska for about $7 million. In 1889, the Oklahoma land rush began. 50,000 Americans and immigrants rushed to claim lots and stake claims on 160 acres in the Midwest and the West. In 1916, the first use of the term realtor is coined by the National Association of Real Estate. Then in 1929, the Great Depression. It coincides, by the way, with the collapse of the real estate market. You'll see that stocks in real estate, as I go through this history, uh, often correlate to one another. In 1934, the National Housing Act creates the FHA. FDR is trying to, you know, the government is trying to lift us out of the, the Great Depression. 1938, the Federal National Mortgage Association, Fannie Mae, is started by the federal government, kind of a pool for where mortgages could be deposited and purchased by the government or this quasi-governmental agency. In the 1960s, the National Association of Real Estate Boards creates the multiple listing system, which is how you see most of your properties now in one way, shape, or form. In 1970, Congress charters Freddie Mac, that was kind of the cousin to Fannie Mae, and that starts the secondary loan market, which allows more and more mortgages to be originated. In 1994, internet property listings become available for the very first time. Think about it now. 99% of all real estate searches are now internet. 1999, internet lead generation is introduced to the real estate industry. 2005, Google introduces Google Maps. And then there's a whole bunch of spin-offs from that. Trujillo, Realtor.com, you name it. I'm sure many of you have gone on there and looked at them. In 2007, the housing bubble bursts, triggering a huge financial crisis, literally around the world and particularly here in the United States. In 2009, real estate phone apps become really popular and remain so today, in fact, increasing in popularity. In 2014, the housing market starts normalizing after the collapse of 2008. And let me tell you a little bit about the background of all this stuff. So for the first half of human history, 
our ancestors basically were hunter-gatherers. They moved with their own four-legged food supplies to various respective areas depending upon the season. The only trace they left on the land was cave drawings, stone weapons and tools, and other similar artifacts. But then the hunter-gatherer lifestyles began to be abandoned. This transition period was like 30,000 B.C. That's 30,000 years ago, folks, and 15,000 B.C. It wasn't quite a global change, although eventually it became so, but it was the shift toward an agrarian society. And it began the advent of home ownership, not really in terms of owning a home, but in staking out something that was yours and defending it from others. So, fertile plains... You know, the agrarian societies would stake out a fertile plain, and they would settle it kind of in a might-makes-right manner. You know, those who could defend the land were the ones who kept the land. Eventually, a system of tribal leaders developed, and those who had the approval of the tribe would disperse lands. They'd settle disputes. They'd require payment from all their quote-unquote subjects. And then they began to build improvements on the land, strongholds, forts, defensive enclosures and battlements, farming methods improved, temples were erected, and populations exploded. Not only did they explode because people had more time to be amorous, they weren't always on the move, but because society was creating more food, more sustenance, and it could support more children, and they needed more children to work the land. In addition, as these congregations of agrarian societies were established, people began to gain the safety of numbers. Hunter-gatherers moved in very small groups, maybe three or four families, just because there wasn't enough to subsist on for a larger group. But once people started to, quote-unquote, settle down, okay, they had the safety of numbers. And in numbers, they could repel raiders. And in return for the security that was afforded by a mass of people and the direction of that mass by the, quote-unquote, leaders, people began to pay homage to the Lord or the King or whatever he or she called themselves, who claimed ownership of the land. This was really the very first system of rent many, many, many thousands of years ago. And then the farming villages grew into cities. The leading families, the royalty, the leaders, maintained ownership by right of lineage, you know. Their ancestors were the ones who clubbed all the other challengers senseless <laughs> and became the kings and the pharaohs and the daimos and the sundry heads of all the feudal dynasties out there. After a time, the system of labor for protection developed into two separate systems in most countries, taxes and tenancy. Okay, royal families, of course, you know, nepotism and, you know, under-the-table stuff, I mean, it's humankind. They spread their wealth to friends. They signed away titles and deeds to land. And then those new holders of the land could collect the revenues or the rent that was being produced by the peasants that were living on the land. But the peasants weren't completely downtrodden. This kind of new system, this new civilizational slant, allowed them to trade with other kingdoms or other villages or other cities. And the general level of wealth increased. And a merchant class began to emerge. Specialized laborers or tradesmen who could earn a living through skills other than farming. And then that resulted in non-agrarian shops, you know, stuff that had nothing to do with farming. And houses. Now, everybody still paid rent and taxes to the various lords and kings, But there began to be a system whereby these houses 
that sat on the land owned by the feudal lords could be sold or traded or rented. The richer merchants became the first common-born landlords, if you will. They were the first to gain wealth and status, really, through real estate. Again, the merchants didn't own the land. That was still in the royalty class. But they owned the houses or the structures that were on it. Over time, this feudal control of land began to break down. You know, some of the feudal lords found themselves separated from their heads. Others uh, met other unfortunate ends at the hands of a common uprising. But basically, what emerged was a system of meritocracy, at least at that time, I'm not sure it's true now, in which the best and the brightest led a nation or a people for the good of all. And that, of course, was the creation of politics. And at that time, lands started to be broken into smaller parcels and sold on kind of a free market. But obviously, the people with the money to buy the deeds were still the upper class, the merchants, former aristocrats who managed to escape the guillotine or some other unfortunate end. And then we come to the United States. And we're going to get into more detail here. But the Homestead Act of 1862 was signed by Abraham Lincoln, and it allowed Americans to purchase and settle 160-acre plots of western U.S. land. About 4 million claims were made by American and American immigrants as a result of the law, which, by the way, was repealed in 1976. And the Industrial Revolution was really one of the great equalizers in human history. In fact, it was matched only by the invention of firearms. By the way, as an aside, you better get active with your senators on the Second Amendment, because this great equalizer over the history of man, the invention of firearms, they're trying to take it away from you. And let me tell you, folks, you really don't want that playing field leveled. Not a good thing. But in the Industrial Revolution, the use of machines instead of manual labor basically freed up a whole bunch of people to do different tasks and allowed people to start spending time or money on education and specialization into kind of new fields of labor. And the poor folks, the cobblers, the seamstresses, the cabinet makers, you know, they found that their skills, which had been so valuable in the past, became obsolete. And they returned to the land and coal mines and all sorts of other ways to try and make ends meet and eke out a living. People with ambition were able to jump classes. Some of them kind of brought their quote-unquote low class, street sense, common sense, sensibilities with them. And they began to develop track housing, knowing what the lower class needed they met the demand. Track housing for laborers, a range of products aimed at the lower classes. And the classes began to evolve into the middle class, the blue collar, and the white collar, and a handful of other social categories. <laughs> In today's day, we have the elites, of course. Uh, you own nothing and you will be happy. And as people became wealthier, they began to own houses and cars and eventually radios and televisions, which, by the way, suggested other things they might want to go out and buy. And the invention of the mortgage. Well, you know, you can't really say it was an invention. Mortgages have been around for a very long time in all sorts of different forms. But after the Industrial Revolution, when the wealth of the world was increasing rapidly, banks began to have the capital to open themselves up to, quote-unquote, higher-risk mortgage loans. You know, mortgage loans to the common people. And this began to allow a 
vast expansion in home ownership or land ownership or property ownership by individuals. And many of those people became landlords themselves. It had taken 30,000 years to get to this point. I mean, that's something to think about. Since 1800, when the federal government first began to kind of sell off land, these peaks and valleys of land sales, speculation, prices, and busts have been fairly uniform. The first major boom and bust was in 1837. By the way, the stock market peaked just prior to that bust. Think about what's happened over the last few. The dot-com bubble of 2000, the stock market plunge in 2008, 2009, 2010, and think about what's happening with the stock market today. In all these cases, in the early busts back in the 1800s, banks would pull back in their horns and they'd start to hoard gold and silver and cash, and they would not lend on real estate for years after each of the busts. Bank lending picked up again after the 1837 disaster with the 1849 gold rush, and credit began to expand, as did home ownership, as did real estate values. An interesting statistic for you. In 1820, the total amount of bank mortgages in the entire United States was just over 100 million. That's 100 million. That's all it was. Now we're talking trillions. That had grown to 700 million about 1860, which is huge but minuscule. And along the way, mortgage-backed securities, the pooling of mortgages, which really is the key to the modern mortgage industry, was created. Now, in 2007, mortgage-backed securities of subprime loans and all sorts of other nonsense, it's, that's a whole history lesson in and of itself, and I'm very familiar with it. That created an entirely different type of wreck. But the mortgage-backed securities, the pooling of mortgages and the selling on the secondary market to Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, is what allowed this credit expansion, which allowed the purchase expansion, which allowed the price expansion to occur. And then, of course, we have the disasters of the 2000 dot-com bubble and then the 2008, basically, collapse of the secondary market, which brings us to the rest of the story. What's happening right now, here, literally, today? Look, when housing prices and the value of American stock portfolios go up, their 401ks, their retirement accounts, their investment accounts. You can see the correlation between the two now that we've seen throughout the history of real estate boom and bust. People feel wealthy and they spend more. When that contracts, either one of them or both of them at one time, as is happening right now, people feel a lot less wealthy. They spend a lot less money and you get into what's called a recession, even though the White House denies that there is such a thing, particularly on their watch. The Wall Street Journal, I think it was last Wednesday, their online version, they had a really interesting article and they had a chart. Did you know that U.S. home equity hits the highest level on record last month? $27.8 trillion. Now think about the fact there was only 700 million in mortgage loans in 1860. That'll give you an idea of what's happened with real estate. But you know, when things hit their highest level on record, well, generally, the only place to go is down. Another correction, a rebuilding, and then another rise. It kind of gives you, when you see headlines like this, which, by the way, are always contrarian and 
lagging indicators of what's really going on, the financial press is always behind the times. Always. What's really going on, they have not reported and they don't know. And what went on before, which has nothing to do today, they're reporting on today. And look, folks, when asset prices go ballistic, they don't stop going ballistic by leveling off. They kind of stall out in midair. They turn right around and they crash. That's just the way it is. It's the way it's always been. It's probably the way it will always be. There are some who think that with the current high inflation rates and low inventory, housing will maintain its value. While you may be of that ilk, basically something that nobody can buy because mortgage rates are high and they can't afford it, or they don't have the cash to put down, has no value, right? Things only have value if you can buy them. And look, that $27.8 trillion in net worth is only net worth and in Americans' pockets if they sell their real estate and convert it to cash. Otherwise, it's kind of a sitting duck for market fluctuations. In 2008, real estate values fell, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending upon the market, about 40% across the board. Basically, the $14.4 trillion previous peak in equity in real estate, which was in the fourth quarter of 2005, fell 40% to $8.3 trillion. Now think about what a 40% drop in the $27.8 trillion current net worth that Americans think they have would do to Americans' psyche or the psyche of anyone else around the world. It wouldn't be pleasant. And people will spend less in that situation. You know, it's called the wealth effect. Let me tell you what's happening in the mortgage market. This is really the rest of the story. Because without mortgages, folks, you can't buy a house unless you sold one, you have the cash. But I mean, that's the exception rather than the rule. There's an outfit called Cherry Creek Mortgage. The owner is Lou Barnes down in Colorado. As of last Friday, the CPI report, right, the really big inflation numbers came out. They were higher than anybody anticipated. And did you know that on Friday, the MBS market, this is the market where lenders and other institutional investors bid on mortgage-backed securities went no bid. Let me explain to you. There were no bidders, zero, nada, none, for any mortgage-backed security on Friday. Do you understand what that does to liquidity in the mortgage market? What it does to rates, which are now up to six and three quarters percent, literally over the last 60 days from three and a half or so? The only other times that this type of thing have happened, and Barnes talks about it in the article, by the way, 1979, 1994, yep, and 2008. And I might add that in July of 2007, and I remember it well. I'll tell you a story about it sometime, you listeners. You'll be fascinated. In July of 2007, subprime mortgages and jumbo mortgages did not get any bids. They went no bid. And by July 2008, all mortgages, let me repeat that, all mortgages and mortgage-backed securities were no bid. There was zero liquidity in the mortgage market for the United States of America and, in fact, for most of the world. Now, one of the things that's different today is that you have a lot of institutional buyers of homes as investments. I mean, they're a huge force in the market. Previously, they bought 20,000 homes per year every quarter from the first quarter of 2008 until about the first quarter of 2012. And then 
they were buying 50,000 homes per quarter in 2017. And then, in the third quarter of 2021, institutional investors bought 93,260 homes, and then 87,900 homes in the fourth quarter of 2021, and almost 78,000 homes in the first quarter of this year. Think about what a bulwark, what a foundation that sets in the housing market, but also think about the competition it creates, because most of these buyers are cash buyers. Not like, you know, you and I who need to get a mortgage to buy something. By the way, the most recent number, that first quarter of 2022, is a new record. Institutional buyers bought 20% of all the homes in the United States of America that were sold in the first quarter of 2022. The bottom line of all this is that you need to understand that this is not the end of the trouble in the housing market, these things that I have reviewed with you in the rest of the story. This is more likely the beginning of the troubles in the housing market. Mortgage applications are down 16% year over year. That's a chunk, folks. And that's over a period of time when interest rates were still like four and three quarters. Over that last 30-day reporting period, they've jumped to six and three quarters. You have to rely on your common sense. You have to rely on the historical cycles in real estate and what they tell you. You have to rely on the indicators today. The double whammy of high inflation, high unemployment, never mind what the government's telling you. Unemployment is 24 plus or minus percent. Go to shadowstats.com. I keep telling you, watch that site. And you have to rely on the math. Let me put all of this in perspective for you as you're making decisions to buy, to sell, to rent, to stay, to wait, whatever your decision is going to be. As the Federal Reserve has increased rates three-quarters of a percent last week, huge, since uh, largest since 1994, basically average rates for 30-year mortgages have climbed from 3.37% in February to almost six and three-quarter percent as you're listening to this show. They might even be higher as you're listening to this show. Basically, if you were a customer and you were paying back a $500,000 mortgage at 3.37% just three months ago, you would have paid $295,000 in total interest. Monthly payment, $2,200. If you go in at the six and three quarter rate today, you're going to be forking over around $3,200, give or take, per month, and you're going to pay over $615,000 in interest over the life of the mortgage. You can't argue against that math. And folks who think that their market is insulated, I hear this all the time, Or that, in some cases, some economists, that the inflation and the low inventory and yada, yada, yada is going to support housing prices. Okay, you know, they have their points. That's not what history teaches us. It's not what the math tells us. It's not what our eyes and ears and gut make us feel. And you have to act accordingly. Now let's talk about DEF. Because this is kind of a fascinating story that, like, almost nobody is aware of. Did you know that there's huge DEF shortages on the east and west coasts and diesel shortages? There's trucks lined up along the highway waiting for DEF and diesel at major supply points. And it's a wreck. DEF is diesel exhaust fluid. Every diesel truck that has been made since 2010 is required to use it. It's a product which is made of 32.5% urea and 67.5% deionized water. 
and every newer diesel truck has to have this product to drive by law. It's sprayed into the exhaust system by an advanced kind of injection system, and then it's converted into ammonia in a catalyst. You know your, your catalytic converters? The ammonia breaks down, supposedly, all the dangerous NOx emissions produced by diesel engines, engines into nitrogen and water. That's its purported purpose. Russia is the largest exporter of urea in the world by a wide margin. Hmm, that's not a good thing. Qatar is second. Egypt and China, oh, there's our friend China again, are tied for third. And just coincidentally, Russia and China have decided suddenly to no longer export urea. And India, the largest manufacturer of urea in the world, though they consume most of what they make, well, they've decided they're no longer going to export their excess, except to Sri Lanka, and we've talked about them in our foreign policy series. The United States imports almost all of its urea fertilizer, think food. We're the third largest importer of urea in the entire world. Basically, the United States has been put into a position by the elites, the morons that have run this country, with very few exceptions, for the last 30 or 40 years, where we need other countries to eat, drive, and ship our products. Gee, terrific. Let me give you an example. Flying J is the largest service provider for truckers around the United States. I know you've seen their gas stations. Flying J gets 70% of their deaf fluid from shipments via the Union Pacific Railroad. UP has single-user access to the fertilizer plants that urea and deaf fluid comes from. No other rail provider has access. So Flying J and the other outfits can't go around Union Pacific. Remember, Union Pacific was kind of uh, put on its feet by Buffett, who happens to be a really good friend of Obama. Hmm, I'll get to that in just a minute, because it all ties in. Flying J provides 30% of all deaf consumed in the United States. Union Pacific has now told Flying J to reduce their shipments by 50%. And if they don't comply, UP is going to cut off Flying J from all deaf shipments. Basically, FJ would go bankrupt. This means that 15% of all deaf consumed by truckers in the United States, just through Flying J, is no longer available at the largest travel service for the entire trucking industry. DEF fluid will be the catalyst, folks, that causes the food shortages, plus the drought, plus all sorts of other things. But if the food can't get to the shelves, voila, you have instantaneous food shortage. And there's less food being grown because, gee, fertilizers made from urea, and particularly in the drought-stricken states, there is no urea. Kansas's drop in wheat production for 2022 is unbelievable. Google it up. I'm sorry. Duck, duck, and go up. Don't Google up anything. We're going to run into a huge shortage of trucks because they simply don't have the fuel or the def to run. Did you know that Home Depot is now limiting the amount of def that an individual consumer can buy in their stores? And Shamik Konar, who's the CEO of Flying J, actually gave testimony. You can get it on YouTube. In fact, I think we're going to try and have it under our audio bar on this show on the rightsideradio.com. Well, the largest shareholder in Union Pacific is BlackRock. And America's biggest fertilizer producer is CF Industries. And their largest shareholder is BlackRock. 
So BlackRock controls the fertilizer and the urea transportation and the DEF transportation and the food transportation network in the United States. Hmm. Urea is fertilizer, so BlackRock controls fertilizer to food growing areas. Here's where it gets really dicey. A mini rest of the story. The chairman of BlackRock Investment Institute is Tom Donilon, D-O-N-I-L-O-N. He happens to be President Obama. See how it all ties in? President Obama's former national security advisor. Tom Donilon's brother, Mike Donilon, is a senior advisor to Joe Biden. Tom Donilon's wife, Catherine Russell, is the White House personnel director. Tom Donilon's daughter, Sarah Donilon, who graduated college in 2019, by the way, now works on the White House National Security Council. Hmm, do you think this is a coincidence? Think about the political repercussions of the fraud that occurred in the 2020 election. And you better get involved in what's coming up in November, folks. Or we're going to be in a world of hurt. In the meantime, keep your eyes on this DEF and diesel fuel supply problem and the urea supply problem because it all affects your refrigerator. And it all affects your family's security. Let's get into rat-a-tat-tat. And here's a sign of the times. Computers, firearms, tools, video games. Guess what? They're parading into the doors of pawn shops suddenly. Wedding rings, family heirlooms. In Lubbock, Texas, a manager of a pawn shop down there said that one person came in to pawn their belongings so they could buy gas to get to work. You know, the progressives... The Democratic Marxists are just doing a terrific job, are they not? Well, the baby formula problem, I mean, there is nothing that kind of typifies how intentionally, i got to underline the word intentionally bungling, the people illegitimately in power in D.C. right now are. So just as they get this plant, which they didn't care about in February and allowed to remain closed, or should we say didn't take proactive steps to get open, this plant, the Abbott Baby Formula Plant in Sturgis, Michigan, which they blamed on, you know, this is why we don't have any baby formula. This is why we're, we have Operation Baby Formula flying in from all corners of the world. Well, maybe it's because we don't make anything in the United States anymore because of their policies. And by the way, the globalist policies of rhinos who have been in office, it was shut down again. It opened for two weeks, folks, and then it was shut down from, quote, severe thunderstorms unquote. <laughs> okay. Last February, that plant stopped its production on FDA orders because allegedly, according to the government, the contaminated formula had hurt two babies. And then it turned out to never have been contaminated at all. Well, you know, the severe weather now that has shut it down again, it's unclear if the government will have to reapprove the plant's operations before it can resume making baby formula. So, you gals and guys out there with little ones, no respite for you on baby formula, not under this government. But everybody's focused on this Roe decision at the Supreme Court, but there's another huge decision coming, okay? There's an upcoming ruling on climate change at SCOTUS that nobody's talking about. This is about the EPA rule that sets punishing fines on coal producers for creating greenhouse gases. This is supposedly, of course, to combat climate change. As we all know, it's really part of the energy squeeze on you and me and the rest of America and the Great Reset. Listen to that historical story I did, you know. New World Order, Great Reset, the history of it goes way, way back on the Right Side Radio. 
EPAsupposed.com. And this is all based on the EPA's supposed power under the 1970s Clean Air Act. Well, the Marxists are worried that the court's going to agree with the Republican states who brought the suit and coal companies. And basically, the claim is that the EPA lacks the authority to essentially create new laws. And of course, they do. That can only be done by Congress. And the argument is that lawmaking has to be reserved to the legislature, not the EPA, which, by the way, is controlled by the president. Oh, President Cadaver, Obama third term in the executive branch. Huh. It's not. New laws can't be made by unelected, appointed bureaucrats. If the court agrees with the Republicans, it could endorse a doctrine called non-delegation. Politico kind of describes it as saying it would stop Congress from handing off big decisions to agencies at all. Underlined, at all. Quote, a narrow reading of what the federal agencies can do is going to literally handcuff the federal government from taking action to protect Americans' health, safety, and the environment. Unquote. This is a ultra-left-wing loon professor. Oh, gee, what a surprise. A public health law professor at Georgetown University, Lawrence Gostin. Hmm. Wouldn't it be terrible, folks, if the federal government were literally handcuffed from taking action to protect Americans' safety? Oh, just awful. We'd have to look out for our own safety. We wouldn't have to put up with lockdowns by money-grubbing, self-indulgent, pompous people like Collins from the NIH and Fauci, tricky, fraudulent Tony Fauci. Hmm. Anyway, the Supreme Court recently ruled on another legal tool to limit agency action. It's called, quote, the major questions doctrine. And the court has cut back agencies a whole lot during the last two years while it was dealing with the Biden administration's oppressive COVID policies. Another big decision at the Supreme Court, in fact, it was an eight-to-one decision, Garland versus Gonzalez. So all the nonprofits who are really left-wing, <laughs> left-wing prongs of George Soros and Mayorkas and those who want open borders and, you know, oh, kumbaya, a world government, no borders, uh, everybody free-flowing, no sovereignty for any nation, I can go on down the list. The Supreme Court overruled a U.S. Court of Appeals Ninth Circuit decision that extended the right to a bond hearing for illegal aliens to every member of a class action lawsuit on behalf of illegal aliens. This is terrific. The bottom line is is that these NGOs were trying to skate through the door for millions of illegal aliens to speed up their green cards, their bond hearings, to allow them to escape bond hearings if it didn't occur in a certain time. And the Supreme Court said, no, every single one of those, it's not one case that will cover a million illegal aliens. You have to have a million cases. Every illegal alien has to have their own deal going. That ought to tie up the left for a while. And if you don't think that the waste of your tax dollars and the creation of inflation through the creation of money, right? Remember our historical story? Inflation is the decrease in value of the purchasing agent, the dollar. The more dollars there are, the less each one is worth. If you don't think that that's the intent of this illegitimate government, then let me give you like a three-in-one rat-a-tat-tat. So back in 1933, Great Depression, the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, SNAP, that was part of the Agricultural Adjustment Act. 
The purpose of the program was to support farmers who were struggling to stay afloat back then. But now, 100 years later, SNAP is the largest federal food assistance program in the United States. One in seven Americans are enrolled in it. SNAP allotments, they, they have announced, you know, more law without legislation, are being increased by a whopping 30 to 40 percent, just, you know, with a wave of the hand, more money printing. In fact, a family of four will now receive $1,074 to $1,667 in Alaska monthly, $1,231 in Guam, and $1,074 in the U.S. Virgin Islands. In fact, in Washington, D.C., families will receive $835. The per meal supplement of SNAP, it's kind of an offshoot of the, you know, food stamp program, is going up $0.40 a meal to $1.80. That's almost a 40% increase. But that's not all, folks, like a bad infomercial. The Democrats don't want to reduce the gas tax because they need it for infrastructure. Earl Blumenauer, a Democrat, oh, big surprise, from Oregon, oh, another big surprise, has asked Biden to oppose a suspension of the federal gas tax because it would have severe unintended consequences for infrastructure. So, you know what they're thinking of now? How about gas rebates for U.S. residents because of record gas prices? In other words, you know, you just kind of send your monthly bill for gas to the federal government, and they send you a rebate for a portion of your gas bill every month. Oh, well, where will it end? Tell us. You know, all they really have to do is open up the federal lands and stop the nonsense and open up the pipelines. It would seem that the creation of revenue and wealth is far better than the printing of money and distribution by the government. But, you know, listen, I'm just your hayseed in Wyoming. So that rebate card for gas is pending. And then, of course, we have Biden mulling over and the progressives pushing for the elimination, the basically the wipeout of all student debt, $1.3 trillion. We saw what a $2 million completely unnecessary political graft bill this COVID act did to inflation. Imagine a $1.3 trillion additional hit. Boy, you ain't seen nothing yet on the inflation front if this stuff goes through. And we are out of time, as always. So let me tell you that it's been my pleasure talking to you. And I want you to look in the mirror, and I want you to repeat with conviction, because you are part of the growing wave of humanity, interlinked humanity, despite differences across the globe. I will muster. I will stand. I will not comply. I will never give in. I will never stop fighting. I will join with those in these United States and across the globe who love freedom as I do, and we will win. Lots more coming at you next week. Thanks for listening this week. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Please remember, if you've missed any shows, just click on Show Archive and you'll find all of his shows. We look forward to seeing you here again next week for another episode of Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side. 